Good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? All y'all. I'm feeling southern, I guess, this morning. How are all y'all doing? Good? The big March winter storm came through yesterday. It's like the weather, the weathermen, the weather people, the weather women. They're almost hoping for the storm to come, aren't they? It's like they want to have something to report. Saw Mike Nelson a couple of days ago tell us about this. Or he was, was watching the news and this big front is coming through on Saturday and it's going to storm. And, I, you know, it really didn't, did it? Um, let's pray. Father in heaven. You know, Father, we pray, um, we pray for rain and snow and moisture. It's been dry. And we ask, Father, that you would once again send uh, water from heaven to water the ground and, and turn it green and to help bring forth life. So, Father, we pray for the blessing of rain and water. And, Father, I pray uh, for this morning and... The words that you have put uh, and placed on my heart. Father, would you please um, help me to say what you want said. Help me to get out of the way of your word. I thank you, Father, for bringing us here together this morning to experience you and your word. And I'd ask, Father, that you'd give us all ears to hear hearts to feel, and hands and feet to do whatever it is that you have in our path before us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 14. Coming very soon is our time as Christians to especially remember and to experience again and to celebrate the bedrock of the Christian faith, and I'm talking about the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus' death and resurrection. That time is coming soon. And in anticipation of those easily most important events in the history of the universe, I thought we'd spend some time anticipating and praise and worship and message the cross and the empty tomb. Long ago, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus and His disciples, actually the eleven, spent a few intimate hours anticipating the very first Good Friday and Resurrection Day. And John, in his Gospel, gives us a unique glimpse into how it is we might also anticipate the cross and the empty tomb. The setting of John 13 and 14 is the Thursday night before Jesus died. When Jesus and His disciples are they're celebrating the very last Jewish Passover Seder before Jesus died and rose again. And John tells us that during this celebration, this celebration of God's deliverance and salvation of Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, John tells us, seems very careful to tell us, that the disciples ask 
And Jesus answers four specific questions. You see, it was customary in Jesus' day and still today that during the Passover meal, four sons would ask their father four questions. And these four questions were asked to help clarify and to help to help bring out the significance of the event. In this case, the significance of Passover. The questions were asked to help bring out the significance of God's deliverance and salvation of His people. And while the questions that the disciples asked Jesus that night were different than the questions normally asked in the other Jewish homes and families that Thursday evening, there's little doubt in my mind at least that John is intentionally echoing this custom. Four questions by four different and specifically named disciples during the Passover Seder. I mean, come on, how could John, who knew and celebrated this custom since birth, not intend the comparison? John even introduces the four questions. He introduces the four questions by making sure that we know Jesus calls His disciples, My dear children. Which, of course, then puts Jesus in the role of their Father. Which, by the way, is something John wants to emphasize here about Jesus too. How knowing Jesus the Son is knowing God the Father. And so I thought, well... If these were four questions asked and answered as Jesus and His disciples anticipated the very first Good Friday and Resurrection Day, and if these questions are indeed intended to help clarify and bring out the significance of God's deliverance and salvation of His people, well then perhaps we would benefit as well by, by taking a look at these same questions and answers as we anticipate this year again the cross and the empty tomb. You see on the screen before you the four questions asked and answered in John 13 and 14. Peter asks of Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Thomas asks, Lord, how can we know the way? Philip follows with, Lord, show us the Father. Or will you show us the Father? For those of you who are apt to come running up after the service, pointing out the NIV doesn't put it in the form of a question, you know who you are. And finally, Jesus' younger brother, Jude, asks, Lord, what about the world? I'm calling the series Come, Let's Go, because after answering the disciples' four questions, you can peek at the end of chapter 14 if you like. After answering his four questions, Jesus says to them, come, let's go. And so we'll end there as well on Resurrection Day with Jesus' exhortation to come, let's go. And so there you have my sermon game plan at least. We'll wrestle with one of the disciples' questions per Sunday the next few weeks, beginning this morning with Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? Your Bibles are open to John 13 and 14. I'll begin reading at chapter 13, verse 31. This verse begins what is often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse, or His last will and testament, some say. His final instructions to His disciples. He's about to leave and He needs to get them ready for that. 
And so his farewell discourse begins here and it runs all the way through John 17. We'll just take the first part of it uh, in our series. So beginning at John 13, verse 31. When he was gone, and the he here is Judas Iscariot, has just left to go finish his arrangements to betray and turn Jesus over. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. And so, as he is wont to do, Peter fires off the first question. Lord, where are you going? And certainly Peter asks the question because Jesus has just said he won't be with them much longer. And so Peter asks, where are you going? Seems plain enough. But maybe there's more context here, I think, that I think that there's more perhaps than only the logistics of where Jesus is about to go on Peter's mind and especially heart. In a word, the context here is dripping, soaked with love. Hanging in the contextual air surrounding Peter's question and also Jesus' answer is love. You say, where do you get that? Well, right before Peter asks his question, Jesus commands the disciples to love each other just like Jesus loved them. Biblical scholars have wrestled with the fact that Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command. Because you can find in the Synoptic Gospels and earlier in John where Jesus clearly says to them, hey, you need to love people. You need to love each other. So what's new about the command? Well, some have observed the new part here, perhaps, is that Jesus says you not only need to love each other, 
But you need to love each other just like I have loved you. And not long before saying that, Jesus began at the beginning of this same chapter, chapter 13. He began the evening Passover meal by washing the disciples' feet. It's hard for me to convey to you how shocking that was in that time and place to those disciples. I suppose it would be... It would be like if you had an honored guest come to your home, President of the United States, um, some renowned world leader, uh, someone that just was, you can't even believe they're coming to your house. And as soon as they get get to the house, they walk in the door, they go to your utility closet, they find the bucket, and they begin systematically cleaning every bathroom and every toilet in your house. How would that make you feel? Mortified, perhaps, right? (laughs) Some of you have particularly dirty bathrooms. (laughs) You know, maybe that comes close, but not even. It's not even there yet what those disciples felt when Jesus got down and started washing their feet. Rabbi wouldn't do that. A great leader wouldn't do that. That was the most menial, humbling, mundane reserve for not just any servant or slave, you know, but the new guy gets to do that. And he's just giving them a shocking example to them and for them of how they are and how they were to love each other like that. And so... The immediate context, including Jesus calling them my children, the Greek could be rendered much more intimate than that even. My dear children. My dear kids. And the immediate context of how to love like Jesus loved is hanging in the air surrounding Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus' answer feels a bit cryptic or indirect, doesn't it? At first, at least. He, he doesn't tell Peter exactly where he's going. He only tells Peter again he can't follow him there now. And again, you can feel the love in the air even with the response. Jesus guesses why Peter wants to know where he's going. Because as a disciple, indeed as disciple number one, probably the eldest, probably the most honored, probably explains why he speaks first almost all the time, in addition to maybe his bold and brash personality, the others would always look to the elder, the eldest disciple in a group of rabbis and tell me deemed disciples. The first would always get the opportunity out of honor to speak first. And so here's... A disciple who by definition will follow hard after wherever his rabbi goes, being told, you can't follow me. And it breaks his heart. Where are you going? And Jesus sees the question behind the question, which maybe is, and Peter follows with it, why can't I come with you? So Peter says, 
where are you going that I can't follow? And at first Jesus says, oh, Peter, you can't follow me there now, but later you will. And Peter must catch something in Jesus' answer that makes him think that Jesus is going somewhere that at least puts Jesus' life in danger. Because Peter immediately says he's willing to die for Jesus. And that statement, of course, deeply ironic, not only because just a few hours later, Peter will adamantly deny he even knows Jesus, but it's also deeply ironic because It's Jesus who will soon lay down His life for Peter. And so with with Jesus' foot-washing love and new command to love as Jesus loved them, still hanging in the air, and given the foreshadowing, if you will, on Peter's lips that Jesus is about to die, one answer to Peter's question, Lord, where are you going and why can't we follow you now? is that Jesus is going to die. And He's going to die because of, in context, love. He's going to the cross as the ultimate and complete expression of His love. Jesus lays down His life for us because He loves us. I think often, Around Easter, what I like to call Resurrection Day, I think often we can get so wrapped up only on the atoning sacrifice and the doctrine that we can't do it on our own and in order to pay the debt, Jesus has to step in and pay the debt and because He paid the debt, now things are right with God and we can be with Him forever. And that's a wonderful, absolute truth. We'll camp there more next week when we respond to Thomas's question, how do we get there? But often, at least for me sometimes, maybe you feel it too, I think we need to be careful each time when Good Friday and Easter comes around to remember that this event, these events of Jesus' death and resurrection are soaked in, bathed in love. And when we look at the cross and when we look at the empty tomb, we see and we feel and we know, as John says in one of his letters, that God is love. Jesus continues His answer to Peter's question in chapter 14. Jesus, of course, notices that the disciples are troubled. Of course, a disciple is going to be troubled by a rabbi saying, you can't follow me now. And of course, they're going to be troubled with this foreshadowing, at least, that his life is going to be in danger. Of course, they're going to be troubled that he's going to leave them. Jesus notices their trouble, and He continues giving them a more direct answer of where he's going. He tells them he's going to God's house, his father's house, think temple, and he tells them the reason he is going to God's house is to prepare for them because they will join him there. 
And so Jesus says, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm leaving and you can't follow me right now. But take heart. One day you'll join me there. I'll come back and I'll bring you there with me. Take heart. One day you will join me in my Father's house. Now, we need to remember that John writes his gospel some 60 years after Jesus ascends to heaven. Most scholars will date John's gospel to the late first century. And we also need to remember that the first century church seemed especially to expect Jesus to return right away, like within their lifetime or within the lifetime of those who were on planet earth when he left and ascended. And so at a time, 60 years out perhaps, many in the church were wondering why Jesus still hadn't returned some 60 years and counting. You know, I wonder what they'd feel like today, 2,000 years and counting. And John gives that church in the first century and us too the reassuring words of John 14. Jesus says, trust me like you trust God. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me. Maybe the first century church was also asking a version of Peter's question, where did he go? And maybe some were feeling anxious that Jesus hadn't yet returned. Maybe some were even wondering whether or not Jesus had forgotten all about them. So John reminds his readers that Jesus loves them, died for them, and He is indeed coming back for them to take them to the place He is preparing for them in God's house. That got me thinking this week. I was wondering this week if on March 8, 2009, not 60 years, but nearly 2,000 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, if we sometimes also need this same encouragement or assurance, same that Jesus gave the eleven the night before he died, and John gave to the first century church in his gospel, and in indeed his letters, first, second, and third John. Do you ever catch yourself feeling like Jesus or, or God? Do you ever want to ask, where'd he go? You ever wonder if he's forgotten about you? I'll never forget. It's like he told me it yesterday, and it was probably ten years ago. The story a good friend shared. He had taken he had taken his sick wife to the Mayo Clinic to try and figure out why she was experiencing so much pain and fatigue. And after many long hours over many long days of tests and poking and prodding and doctor consultations, no one had a clue. No one had any answers. And then one night, exhausted, one night after midnight, he just he had to step away from his wife's bedside after she had finally fallen asleep, and he just started walking. Walking out of a room, walking down the hall of the clinic, walking down the stairs, through the lobby, walking out through the front doors. He just started walking in the cold night. And he just kept walking until he found himself walking down the middle of a deserted road. 
right down the middle. He recalls vividly walking right between the double yellow lines in the night. And after he had walked about as far as he could go, he stopped there right in the middle of the road. He looked up into the pitch black sky. He stuck his fist in the air and he shouted out in tears and weeping to God, Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You ever find yourself there? If you haven't, chances are you will. You ever feel like God has left you and has forgotten about you? When your wife is death, deathly ill. When your husband leaves you or doesn't pay any attention to you anymore. When your son turns away from God. When your granddaughter is killed in a freak accident. When your cancer doesn't respond to therapy. When you lose your job. When the bank forecloses. When someone you love dies. When you blow out your knee. When you're lonely. And those times when life, when your life is just hard. And you're exhausted. Have you ever been there and wanted to shout to God, Where are you? Have you forgotten about me? In the movie August Rush, a young boy, Evan, is orphaned and ends up in a boy's home. And despite, despite everyone encouraging Evan to open up to the possibility of adoption, to accept that mom and dad will never come and find him, Evan continues to hope against all hope that his mom will turn up to claim him and will remember him and come back for him. At one point in the story, Evan is feeling particularly discouraged and, you know, of all places, he wanders into a church. And he's encouraged to keep on hoping. Let's watch.
You're crazy. What's your name? Lila Novacek. Well, it's like the woman explained to you. You fill out a couple forms. No, no, six months, they said. I don't have six months for forms. Then I can't help you then. Explain something to me now. Why now? Why not before? Why is it so important that you want him now? I've always wanted him. I've waited 11 years, two months, and 15 days to find out that he's alive. I've been counting. I love the, I love the picture of that mother as a window into the heart of our God. He's been counting the years and the months and the days too. Since you've been born and since before you've been born. And he's counting down the days when he can turn to... When God the Father can turn to God the Son, Jesus, and say, Today's the day. Go get them. Be encouraged. Be encouraged that God loves you and has not forgotten you. 
Whatever the it is in the song you just heard, raise it up. At this time of year for Christians, the it is the cross in the empty tomb. Raise them up. And when you raise them up and see them again, especially this time of year, remember and be encouraged that God loves you and remembers you and has not forgotten you. Jesus is no longer physically present. He is in that sense gone. But He has not forgotten His promise to come back and take you to be with Him. The four questions the disciples asked during the celebration of God's deliverance and salvation of His people are designed to bring out the significance of what the celebration is all about. And in answer to Peter's question, Lord, where are you going and why can't we be with you right now? We're reminded of the significance of an Almighty God who loves us, cherishes us, and an all-powerful God who remembers us and who always keeps His promises and who will keep His promise to come for us so that we can be together with Him in God's house. Remember, He promised Adam and Eve In the words to the snake in Genesis 3, that one of her descendants would come and crush the snake's head. It took him who knows how many thousands of years to keep that promise. But he kept it. He didn't forget. Don't be tempted. Whether it's 60 years, whether it's 2,000 years, whether it's another 10,000 years, don't be tempted to think, He's forgotten. He doesn't forget His promises. He always keeps them. He loves you and He has not forgotten you. And so as you see the cross and the empty tomb raised up again this Good Friday and Resurrection Day, remember and be encouraged that God loves you. He has not forgotten about you. Where is Jesus? Jesus came and died and rose again from the dead and He's preparing a place for you, for us in God's house, and then He's coming to take His home, take us home. That's where He is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for being a God that always keeps His promises. And thank You, Father, for being a God who acts first and foremost and always out of a deep and sincere love for people. Father, we're reminded again this morning in song and word and in message, Father, that You asked us through Your disciples and through Your Word, You've asked us to love each other like Jesus loved them. Yes, even foot washing. Yes, even laying down our own lives and our own interests for the interests of others. And You've asked us, Father, to do this because the world then might know who You are in observing and experiencing how we love each other and how we love them. Oh, Father, anoint us again with the Holy Spirit to help enable us to push self out of the way, and to love in Your name. Thank You for the privilege it is to belong and be a part of this loving community. And for the privilege it is to serve each other as Jesus served us. 
We love you. And in Jesus, the Messiah's name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, and receive God's blessing, His benediction. This morning, from Jesus' farewell discourse, He pauses in John 16, verse 33. And He says to the disciples, and God says through those same words to you and to me today, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in Me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week. God bless you all.